Thanks, Tom. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, thank you so much for inviting me here today. Um, I guess, firstly, it's probably a good point to, to introduce myself to you. Um, I'm InterServe's Relationship Manager in Queensland, um, and I've only been in that role since January. But prior to that, um, I have a bit of a mixed background. Um, I, I was a journalist for many years. Um, so I worked for News Limited. I was a foreign correspondent for News Limited in China. Um, and though that background is actually quite pivotal in why I'm here today. Um, when I first started at News Limited in the mid-90s, um, I wasn't a follower of Jesus. I was put into a small office with one other person, uh, the photographer, and he was a follower of Jesus. And it was actually in that workplace environment um, that I came to know the Lord. It was kind of interesting. He would share his faith very naturally. Um, I watched his life very carefully. He never got angry and frustrated. He didn't swear. He didn't behave like the other journos that I worked with. So I was constantly examining um, his life. Um, and as we would travel and do our work together, he would share his faith and share the gospel with me. Sometimes I would respond with hostility, sometimes with anger. Um, and he did this for about nine to ten months. In December 1995, so quite a while ago, um, my life was in chaos. And it was actually, it was, I guess, in such chaos that I decided that on the, it would have been, um, I guess earlier on in that month, I decided that that would be the, the time that I would take my own life. And it was actually in the midst of that that I met Jesus. And so in the process of actually taking my own life, there was a voice in my head that said, you can either die now or you can live with me. And I knew that I had to become a follower of Jesus and I had to serve him. So I rang my friend. I said, I want to follow Jesus. And it was in the middle of the night and he said, what are you talking about? And I explained what happened and he hopped in the car and at that point I repented and received the Lord Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. And it was an amazing time because literally it was like a switch flicked on um, and I had a sudden desire to share this newfound faith. I had a desire for mission um, and so forth. There were many things that were happening. I continued working as a journalist for many years um, but in the process of that I did extra study. I did... Chinese studies because I was working in China and then I ended up doing a PhD in anthropology of all things. Um, but it was because I had a love of culture, a love about learning people that were different to me with a heart of actually going and serving. And so then in the 2000s, um, my wife and I went and served in Thailand for much of the 2000s working in anti-human trafficking projects over there um, as part of that work. Um, so that's a little bit about me and how I've come to be part of a mission organisation. When we served in Thailand in the 2000s, I wasn't with InterServe. I was with American Baptist. It's a long story. I won't go into it. But I was with American Baptist over there. But um, it was very much in the same vein as how InterServe works. So this morning what I'm going to do is share with you a little bit about InterServe and our work. We're going to go through Luke 15. I understand that you've been looking at Luke 15 and the prodigal son here. So we're going to look a, bit, a little bit of Luke 15 as well as part of that. 
But what I'm going to do is share a couple of stories because I think it's, it's helpful to see how this works on the field. So I'll share with you a couple of stories about InterServe's work and my own work overseas. Um, who's familiar with InterServe? Firstly, not too much. InterServe's a really interesting organisation. Last year, we celebrated our 170th birthday. It's an incredibly old mission agency. It was really one of the first ones of the modern mission agencies. You may be familiar with a previous name, um, Bible and Medical Missionary Fellowship. So BMMF was a previous name of InterServe. But InterServe is old. Interestingly, its first 100 years, it was only women. So InterServe was actually started by women and it was a very much a pioneering organisation. And these women were very, I guess, focused. They wanted to serve God in India, training other women, Indian women, to be teachers and doctors. But at the time, women in the United Kingdom were actually not allowed to study medicine themselves. So these bold women with a vision from God lobbied and sent petitions to Queen Victoria for her to change the law to enable them to study to become doctors. And she did. And that's how the mission began. So that's the actual background of, of InterServe. Men joined in 1952, and then obviously families were included in that whole process. So since 1952, it's been a completely different sort of story. Um, in the early days, it was focused predominantly on medical mission and teaching. Nowadays, it's everything from baristas to business people to doctors to nurses to teachers and so forth. Pretty much any vocational skill you have, InterServe will embrace as part of our mission in serving overseas. I was chatting to Graham this morning. Um, in more recent times, since COVID, InterServe has also changed direction in that we no longer just send overseas and when I say overseas our focus is Asia and the Arab world so East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Central Asia, the stands in Central Asia, the Middle East and North Africa but we are also sending missionaries to targeted unreached people in Australia. So right now to sort of give a demonstration of what that looks like we have one woman in Toowoomba whose ministry is to the Yazidi people who came to Australia from Syria during the rise of ISIS. So in Toowoomba, there are 5,000 Yazidi people living in Toowoomba right now. To our knowledge, not one of them is a follower of Jesus. So we have one woman to 5,000 people in that community, and she's saying, the door is open, please come and join me in this ministry to the Yazidi people because they are open to hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ just up on the range. So there are opportunities in Toowoomba, in Logan, in Western Sydney and in other parts of Australia for this kind of targeted ministry as part of um, InterServe. Um, this morning I'm going to explore Luke 15, 1-10. So the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin... Um, you may want to turn to it in your Bibles right now. I'm going to read from those passages just to get us focused on the word. Verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. 
This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and his neighbours, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbours and say, Rejoice, because I've found the lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So as I said, my background is in journalism. And to unpack some of this this morning, I'm going to share a couple of stories. The first one um, really connects with the time that we served in Thailand. To me, these two parables can be broken down into relatively simplistic terms. Basically, the parables are about... Let me see if this works. Technology, here we go. No, clicker's not working. That's okay. We'll just wait a moment. Oh, there we are. Okay, thank you. Um, so basically, it's about two things. It's about our heart and our treasure. Where are we investing our treasure The biblical idea of heart is an interesting concept. My wife Chrissy and I, as I said, served in Thailand. And in the Thai language, the word jai or heart is a pivotal part of the language. It forms literally hundreds of words. For example, people who are selfless and caring in Thailand are referred to as jai di, the good heart while those who commit evil and heinous acts are referred to as jaidam, the black heart. And those who are conceited or rigid in their decision-making are referred to as jaikep, the narrow heart. Thai people recognise that the heart, or rather the condition of our heart, impacts our behaviour, our response to situations our emotions, and ultimately the way people view us. It is everything in their culture. In the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, Jesus challenges the narrow, pious and sanctimonious hearts of the Pharisees. The the parables contain self-righteous, contrast self-righteousness 
with godly righteousness. And Jesus reveals his own heart to go beyond, to actually embrace his heart in our situations in the world. Um, It's about going outside our comfort zone, doing the hard yards in search of the lost. Jesus' heart is captured in verse 7. He says, In the same way there is more happiness in heaven because of one sinner who turns to God than over 99 other people who don't need to. And in verse 10, in the same way God's angels are happy when even one person turns to him. So the parable is actually calling for our heart to be aligned with Jesus' heart. And in return, this will impact our treasure, our legacy and eternity. The Pharisees were determined to build their legacy on worldly power, influence and man-made religion, rather than serving with the heart of Jesus. They had head knowledge, but narrow minds and hard hearts. The treasures that they were building were ugly, judgmental and legalistic. There was absolutely no grace. These parables call us to treasures in heaven the salvation of souls and a heart that submits to God's plan on earth to save the lost. Treasure links to the idea of legacy, but legacy is something that we often don't think about much in life, let alone in our Christian life. The Cambridge Dictionary defines legacy as something that is part of your history or that remains from an earlier time. Simply, our legacy is what we become known for. What are we known for as people? And in a Christian sense, it is really defined by whether we have stored up for ourselves treasures on earth or whether we have stored up for ourselves treasures in heaven while pursuing the heart of Jesus, following him and serving him. I must admit that for me, legacy was something that I never really thought about. But in the years after we returned to Australia, after living and serving in Thailand, it became incredibly important as I unpacked and reflected on our work over there. And this morning I'll explain to you why. In 2007, my family moved to the community of Tawang Pa in Nam province. As you can see, it's it's quite, it's in the boonies of Thailand. Um, When we moved to Nan province, there were literally only four foreigners that lived in this province. It was about as traditionally Thai as you could get. Um, It was a small community, not far from the Lao border. But there were incredible challenges in this community. Human trafficking, this was, I guess, a human trafficking hub. This is where organised crime gangs would come and pull people from their villages, sometimes abduct them, sometimes deceive them, and they would force them into all sorts of exploitative work elsewhere, not only in Thailand, but throughout Asia. So it was also an incredibly dangerous part of Thailand to live. We were training local Christian workers who were serving on a youth leadership project. Young people were at particular risk. Our job was to mentor these young Christian workers on strategies for building youth leaders in an area where there were not many opportunities. 
a lot of the kids finished schooling at primary school. That step of going on and even thinking of university was almost out of anyone's reach. So I guess we were building resilience in these villages in a plan to thwart the work of human traffickers. As you can imagine, it was pretty intense. But I guess the gravity of where we were living came home to us in our first couple of days when we moved to the community. We were at a local market. Our daughter at the time, she was 16 months when we moved to Thailand. We were in the market. She was typically blonde-haired, blue-eyed. She was like a little doll. People crowded around us in the marketplace just trying to find out who we were. As people gathered around us, we heard someone say in the background, you'd get a great price for her. So we knew that this community was somewhere where life was very different to where we'd come from. It was incredibly, I guess, confronting and we had to think about the way we were going to live and look after ourselves within that context. Not only were we working in our village, but we went up to the mountains and we worked in 14 villages scattered in the northern reaches of Thailand. Our youth group that we were working with was 1,400 youth. That was our target group that we were working with, and there were only about four of us working within that context. Um, But we had a number of youth leaders who, I guess, were like the 99. They were followers of Jesus, and they were safe in the sense of living in their village community. So part of what we were doing, we were going out to look at the outliers, the other kids that were at risk beyond them, and trying to show them the love of Jesus. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Christian chorus song, Reckless Love, but in the chorus, the words say, Oh, the overwhelming, overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. To pursue the lost sheep and lost coin requires a kind of reckless love. And in serving in Thailand, we were attempting to live this out not always succeeding, often failing, but we were demonstrating this love of Jesus to those who we were connecting with and serving. However, when we search for that lost sheep or that lost coin, it can be costly. And the attacks we faced in carrying out the work were unexpected and tested us greatly. And if I leave nothing else but this morning, I would just urge you to pray for missionaries. Being covered in prayer is just a wonderful gift that we can give to those who are serving. And in our own experience, it was just incredibly vital to the ministry that we were engaged in. So once we moved into that house, that was our traditional Thai house that we moved into, we discovered that it was infested with these. Do you know what they are? They're bed bugs. The whole house was full of them. We loved the house when we moved in. We went, wow, this place is fantastic. But we didn't know that they were living in the tongue and groove walls and the floorboards. So at night, when we would go to bed, and after the, we found out that, you know, from the market that our daughter would get a good price, she slept wedged between my wife and myself in the bed, so she was right there. But we would hear her thrash at night. And we're like, what's, what's going on? Well, I, I don't know why she's so restless. 
And then we would wake up in the morning and our bed would be covered in blood. So the soft skin of a young child was particularly tasty for these bed bugs. So they would come in and that they would attack her night after night. Um, we didn't know what to do. Thailand is a land of chemicals. The answer is everything is spray pesticide on it and it'll go away. Well, we weren't going to do that. So we went to the neighbours and we said, we've got these bed bugs in our house, what would you do? We thought it was a great way to build connection with our neighbours. They looked at us and they said, we'd burn our house down. It wasn't an option for us. And so we decided that each morning we would just boil water and throw it on the walls, the roof, the floor, in the hope that the boiling water would kill them. We did this for three months. It's amazing how something so small could be so incredibly discouraging to the ministry that you really felt that God had called you to. So there's the initial excitement and then the reality. And we were stuck in this reality. We had no idea how to get out of it. So we would wake up of a morning, two to three hours, boil water, and then throw, throw, throw. But the bed bugs didn't go away. After three months, we'd actually reached our limit. We couldn't believe that our mission had been derailed by these things. And so, somewhat broken, actually, I'll be completely honest, we went to the lounge room floor, the three of us sat down together, and we prayed. It was a cry, I guess, of just complete and utter dependence on God. And it was just a simple prayer. God, we can't do this. We can't get rid of these things. Help us. We don't know what else to do, but we are just at this moment wholly dependent upon you. Within minutes of finishing our prayer, hundreds of ants from the rose apple tree in front of our house launched into a procession up the front stairs and in the front door. I still remember my wife going to the front door and going, oh no, now we've got ants as well. But something amazing was about to happen. As we looked at the ants, as they went through our house, they crawled into the tongue and groove boards everywhere. There were hundreds of them. And as they came out, they had the carcass of a dead bed bug on their back. They removed them from our house and we never had them again. We knew that God was going to look after us. We knew it was going to be hard, but we knew that we had to completely and wholly depend on him for everything. And there's a tendency for us to, you know, our human nature, our sinful nature, to want to do it in our own strength, to do it in our own expertise and our own knowledge. And at that moment, God taught us that we had to depend on him for everything. Um, we knew that he was going to help us in the ministry and that sometimes God can do the miraculous. And I think in this Western society and in Western culture, we forget that, that God can do the incredible. Our daughter, Soraya, who now is 17, um, she still has the scars from the bed bugs on the back of her hands. You can't really see them in that image very well. 
Um, Bedbug bites aren't meant to scar. But she had so many of them that they did, and some of them got infected from, from the attacks. But we loved her approach to these bites. From a little girl, she called them her God tattoo. She said, this is my God tattoo because it reminds me of the day that God rescued us. And she uses that in her relationships with her friends now. And I think that often so much of what happens to us, it's how we look at it, how we look at a situation and a context. After that, we learnt that when you're committed to searching for the lost sheep, when your heart aligns with Jesus, there are going to be challenges and spiritual opposition. But God is sovereign and his will will be done. So we stayed for three years and completed the project and the local workers thrived. I guess in in our training, it was really a discipling of the local workers and building them up, not only in work practice, but in their faith. We saw them grow spiritually as they embedded searching for the lost sheep as part of their work practice. We came back to Australia and stayed connected with the organisation in a number of different ways. And in 2015, one of the local staff contacted me. They had set up a new youth leadership project in another part of Thailand working with Burmese refugees, most of whom were living in Thailand without parents and without any family. They were incredibly at risk. The organisation was supporting their education as well as their practical physical needs. And um, they were providing things like food and clothing and shelter. And they had funding for the project, but they'd found one boy, a lost sheep. And he had, was on the verge of, of, of really coming to faith. And they'd been meeting with him and they said, can you support this? young fellow and so we agreed to support his education and his involvement in the program and he came to faith through that however we could have never have imagined the impact that this lost sheep could have ever have had three years after we began supporting him in 2018 it was June the organization someone from the organization called me They asked me to pray fervently for this young man. They didn't say much. They just said he's gone missing with a group of his friends. We're incredibly worried about him. We don't know what's going to happen. The next day they contacted me again to say he'd gone missing. He'd gone missing in a cave. You may remember the Thai cave. He was one of the boys that was in the cave. Um, Adun is in the top there on the right hand side he was one of the boys that went in as part of the wild boars football team he was the only Christian in the cave he was also the only one who could speak English he'd learnt English as part of this program and he was the one who could communicate with the rescuers when they came to save them I know in the media when this was happening and afterwards we, we heard about the coach and that he went in and did meditative practice and that was part of the the key. But I can tell you, this boy was praying in there with his teammates. He was sharing the love of Jesus in that cave. And the other boys said that was the thing. 
that really sustained them during that time. It's an incredible story of when we search for the lost sheep. We really don't know the end story, but God does. And God can use those lost sheep, like all of us, to do mighty things for his kingdom. And that is the joy we have in being able to share the love of Jesus with those in the world. After the rescue, the Wall Street Journal said about this young man, it was his knowledge of English that was crucial because it allowed him to talk with the British rescue divers on behalf of the group when it was discovered nine days after becoming stuck. Vitally, Ardun provided leadership and clarity to the rescuers on how long the team had been in the cave and what they needed. In 2019, that's my daughter Soraya with Ardun. She used to share her pocket money in supporting him. They both play football. She said, how fantastic, I can support another footballer to live his football dream as well as get an education. But that photo is like the parable that we look at in Luke. It's people coming together and the rejoicing that we see as part of that lost sheep and what is actually happening. And it was a wonderful time as the two of them got to know each other personally um, after this. Adun's rescue is a tremendous story of God's providence. It is a reminder that when we search for the lost sheep or the lost coin, a legacy begins and treasures in heaven begin to accumulate. Jesus rejoices when the lost sheep is saved, but as I said, that's just the start of the story. That sheep can go on to be used by God in mighty ways, and that's something that we often never know what happens afterwards. So, this approach underpins the work of InterServe. As I said, we work in the Arab and Asian worlds, and we take seriously Jesus' call to seek and serve the lost. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings good news to the poor, freedom to the oppressed, healing for the sick, and demonstrates God's love for the whole world. Our faith in God becomes action when we follow in Jesus' footsteps, and that's what InterServe is about. This time last week I was in Melbourne and I was with the Australian team of InterServe. And the Australian team are the workers who are in Australia serving God in different ways. And I found it an incredibly, I guess, inspiring time as I learned about people serving Afghani refugees in Melbourne, as I learned about people serving um, people of Vietnamese heritage in Sydney. And to know that our multiculturalism in Australia... God has brought these people to us and we need to reach out to them and show Jesus' love. And to hear how that takes place in different ways was incredibly exciting. Pivotal to InterServe's work is demonstrating the heart of Jesus by using people's God-given gifts, abilities and professions to serve the most marginalised in some of the world's hardest places as well. Um, We're involved in what we call tangible love, social change, giving people the opportunity of education and workplace training and spiritual transformation, of course. I guess in simple terms, the way we look at it at InterServe is proclamation. You have to preach the gospel. Demonstration. 
We need to live the gospel through our life and we need to be that, that Christian difference in the world. And that needs to be mirrored through the way we behave and interact with others. And fellowship. Fellowship with the church in Australia, but also fellowship where it's safe to do so, with the local church in the communities where we work. And I guess the joyous part is when the work succeeds and we actually step out of that place and enable the Indigenous church to take it on in their own cultural context in the way they know best. And that's where interservers work, in, particularly in India, in the last 50 years, there's been a real stepping back as the local church takes on the role um, as interserve moves out. Um, what Jesus was telling the Pharisees in Luke 15 is that his love is not abstract, nor is it like the way the world loves or does things, but it's actually tangible. It's deep love driven by an eternal purpose and a love that is really impossible for us to really get our heads around. By God's grace, people encounter the gospel as we share our lives, skills and experience. In 2001, Chrissy and myself, Chrissy's my wife, we went to Thailand and we worked with an organisation called the New Life Centre. It's run by American Baptists. We knew nothing about human trafficking and it was a human trafficking, an anti-human trafficking organisation. We had a desire to serve God, a keenness and enthusiasm. But I remember the director of the centre when we rocked up for the first time and she was doing lots of this at us and saying, don't you come here and think that you are going to be these white saviours to these girls. Living the gospel is about consistency. You commit, you come every day. You show love in meaningful ways by eating together, by sharing together, by doing things together. You actually just, it's the normal things of life that you share. And we actually had to write down and, and give her a statement about how that would, what that would mean for us. And she called it a ministry of presence. She said, it's the things that we do. And it's kind of like my workmate who, who had the privilege of, of um, sharing the gospel with me. I, I watched his life. I observed his life. And this was now being replicated in my own life, but in a very different context with these young women. Um, and that's what it was called, was a ministry of presence. And that's very much the way InterServe works around the world. Living the gospel is central to our DNA. It's holistic, which means we, we bear witness to the gospel in all aspects of life. It's alongside the church, equipping the body of Christ to reach out to the world around it. It's practical, using skills to meet people's physical needs. And it's sustainable, hoping that, you know, for example, our team in Afghanistan had to withdraw once the Taliban um, took over quite recently. So there's a need for it to be sustainable. You build the church up, you build people's skills up, so if you do have to move out, it doesn't collapse after you've left. And we've seen that there's been great things happening in Afghanistan after our team had to move from there. To show what this looks like, I thought I would share the story of Tom Little, who served in Afghanistan for many, many years. Tom was a gifted optometrist and served with InterServe as part of InterServe USA. He could have lived a well-off life with his wife and family in his native New York. But in 1977... 
He and his wife Libby moved to Afghanistan where they served as medical missionaries to restore the sight of the most marginalised and poor Afghani citizens. He trained Afghani opticians to make the work sustainable um, and he risked his life during uprisings, the Soviet occupation, anarchy and the Taliban and travelled to the most far out reaches of, of Afghanistan to demonstrate God's love as part of his ministry. But in 2010, after 33 years of service, Tom Little was murdered by the Taliban. It's an incredibly sad story, but an incredibly uplifting story because of the consistency of ministry that he demonstrated. He and his family stayed there in spite of all of the challenges that they faced. He demonstrated what it looks like to be a person who looks for the lost sheep. He used his God-given gifts and talents, aligning them with Jesus' heart to serve in one of the toughest, most hostile places on earth. For him, he could have easily have stored up treasures on earth as a medical professional, living a life of comfort. But he embraced Jesus' heart. He took on the challenge of the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, knowing the search would not be easy. And to be honest, hard is an understatement in the context in which they lived. In a documentary called Hard Places that was made about their lives afterwards, we are told that in the midst of the Russian occupation while they lived in Kabul, there were 100 rockets a day on a good day, whizzing by their home. Lots of other people left, but they refused to leave. They decided to stay there and continue to serve God. Hard for us to imagine, but it demonstrates the passion and how serious they took God's calling upon their life. Um, it's a call that ultimately cost Tom his life. However, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin are not just for some Christians. They're not just for the Tom Littles and the other missionaries who go and serve. They're for all of us. They compel us to ask the question, who are the lost sheep in my life? Who are they? You don't have to go to Thailand or Afghanistan or wherever to be part of this. There are lost sheep all around us. And we need to just have that heart that's willing to look for them and the obedience to follow our Lord and Saviour in our community context. The starting point is to get close to God. Spend time with him. Pray. If we don't do this, we will become distracted by the things of the world. The things of the world today are loud. The claws are there trying to drag us into worldly thinking and worldly ideology. But by immersing ourselves in God's word and by praying and seeking God's will for our life, it gives us the tools to stand up in the midst of that challenge. When we embrace worldly ideology, we lose eternal perspective. You look at Australia, the eternal perspective for the most part in our community is being drained. We need to embrace that in our service. Sometimes we lose heart 
We just lose heart by what we see around us. And in a sense, that's what happened to the Pharisees. And this passage is a warning, so it doesn't happen to us too. So for us, it's just about that service to God. In the documentary on Tom Little's life, his wife can be heard reading a poem in the documentary. And this is what it says. O blessed are the patient meek who quietly suffer wrong. How glorious are the foolish weak by God made greatly strong. So strong they take the conqueror's crown and turn the whole world upside down. I love the fact that Jesus invites us to turn the world upside down, not by revolution, not by rebellion, but by demonstrating his love. These words seem so significant in the context of the parables that we've looked at today. God's ways are not the world's ways. His love is radical. His love is transformative with the capacity to turn the whole world upside down. The Pharisees were pious, judgmental, haughty and hypocritical. But in sharing the parable with them, Jesus was actually extending his heart. The world I look at today needs Jesus. It needs his love. Let's heed the call. So to finish, I thought I would finish with this verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. It encapsulates Jesus' call in Luke 15. It says, Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Searching for the lost is a powerful message to the world that as followers of Jesus, we are different. We need to be different. We might do things that are foolish in the eyes of the world, but let's embrace this foolishness as an act of obedience to God to turn the world upside down.